I believe. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal Christian church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. A love your neighbor kind of church, like Christ Journey Church. Amen. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that seeks to see other people in the same way that Jesus saw them and to help them find Jesus, to find their Savior, and invite them into the community of the church. I'm so grateful for this church. And every time we gather together, Gables Campus, Kimball Campus, Church Online joining us, all of those live streaming us right now on social media, I'm so thankful that in this church that we have a high-touch, high-tech feel about us to where we can grow together as a community both in place here at our Gables campus but also do so around our city and throughout our region. I love that and I want to call us into prayer today because at 11 a.m. in about an hour and a half the Miami Beach campus will be gathering for the first time on a Sunday for their launch party and we want to be praying for them. And so Kindle Campus Church Online, everyone, let's join together as one church in prayer for Miami Beach. Father, we thank you for what you are doing in our congregations, for the vision that you have given to us to see our reach go beyond place, but into the hearts and lives of individuals around our city, around our nation, and the world. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for giving us this great calling. We want to steward it well, and we invite your spirit to come alive in us to empower us and to empower our friends gathered on the beach. May so many through their witness, their witness to your love, grace, and mercy, may so many on the beach come to know you as their Lord and Savior and experience your goodness and grace. Father, we ask that this be so. As we lift up the beach and all those who have journeyed there to see your church and your kingdom expand. We pray for them in the name of your resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. We're so excited. Well, today the creed meets us in perhaps the most vulnerable and most visible place of our lives, in the forgiveness of sins, on the most practical, real-life level, Forgiveness may be the most extraordinarily difficult act that any one of us may ever experience in our lives, no matter what side of the forgiveness equation in which we find ourselves, whether we're receiving it or whether we're extending it. On the one hand, forgiveness is essential for life. It's like breath in our lungs. But on the other hand, forgiveness also confronts our faith and forces us to ask the question, do we really believe in this God? who claims to wholly forgive us and then calls us to do the very same thing. Hence why pastors and theologians across the centuries have called Jesus' forgiving sacrifice on the cross scandalous. Do you know what scandalous means? Scandalous means an offense against morality. Forgiveness offends our very sense of right and wrong. Karma makes moral sense. Good people get the good things that they deserve. 
Vengeance makes moral sense. Vengeance inflicts exact punishment for a wrong. Someone harms you, vengeance inflicts the exact same harm back to them. That's why we love movies like Gladiator and Braveheart. The protagonists imposed exact vengeance against those who harm the ones that they love. Movies like those, they affirm our sense of right and wrong. Unlike my dear friend Bob, known Bob for about 10 years. A drunk driver killed Bob's wife about 20 years ago. And Bob forgave him. In fact, at the sentencing hearing, Bob told the judge to give him a lesser sentence because, to quote Bob, he didn't want another life to end in this tragedy. Wow, that's scandalous. A lot of Bob's friends criticized him harshly for what he did. In fact, a lot of people called what Bob did immoral. That's what forgiveness does. And though a moral God created us in his image, our fallen morality seeks to judge in God's place. All of us fall for the lie continually. That we are God and able to declare right and wrong in our lives without ever seeking God's will or mind on the matter. Forgiveness offends our very sense of right and wrong, but thank God that it doesn't offend God's sense of right and wrong. No wonder so many religious moral do-gooders found Jesus so deeply offensive during his public ministry. And why? Because he forgave people of their sins. If you go back and read through each one of the four Gospels, every time Jesus forgave the religious leaders, most notably the Pharisees, they wanted to kill him for it. For it. They, they, wanted to, they wanted to get him for it. And why? Because Jesus' very forgiveness of our sins upends the entire moral system. It did so for the Pharisees, and it did so for those, those of us who fall for that lie that we can live morally superior, that we can judge right and wrong. Forgiveness offends our sensibilities. It contradicts those deepest desires within all of us that seek to control and maintain our own sense of presence and control in our lives. Now, I want to note that this kind of moral superiority, this ought not be confused with those who are called to actually bring about order and justice in our world. Those people such as law enforcement, firefighters, those people such as lawyers, government officials, who actually see that part of God's heart come alive in our world, that part of God's order and grace and justice come alive in our world. They're called to do that. Moral superiority comes when we refuse to forgive because we want to maintain some sense of control, some sense of, uh, some sense of identity about us. That's, that's the conflict with forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs something of the forgiver regardless of the size of the offense. By definition, forgiveness of any kind means that the offended assumes the offender's debt. That's, that's inherently the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness always comes with a price tag, especially for the person who's extending the forgiveness. Debts don't just disappear in our world, as all of us know. Whether they be financial, emotional, physical, we live in a world where the ledgers of our lives, the ledgers of our hearts, need to zero out. One theologian wrote on forgiveness saying this, forgiveness seems almost unnatural in this world. Our sense of fairness says that people should pay for the wrongs that they do. But forgiving, listen to this, forgiving is love's power to break nature's rule. <clears throat> Think about that. Forgiveness is so offensive that it breaks the very laws of nature. Grudges, revenge, resentment, 
harsh words, gossip, neglect, those things seem more natural in the broken world where we live. But in Christ Jesus, forgiveness is love's power to break our fallen nature's bent toward moral superiority. The Apostle Paul described the extent to which Jesus demonstrated God's love power for you and me in his letter to the church in Colossae when Paul wrote this, for he, and this he, this pronoun meaning God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I mean, really, what an extraordinary gift that God gave to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul's reference here to Jesus' kingdom was first mentioned by the evangelist Luke, who recorded Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61 when Jesus said this. Listen to what Jesus said here. The first words that Jesus spoke to initiate his public ministry, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. Remember this word, freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In this statement, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus first identified himself as God's Messiah, as the one who would eventually restore the whole world and everything in it back to rights, back to the way that God originally intended this world all the way in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And here... Jesus said that God, through him, will establish the year of the Lord's favor. This phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, refers to the year of Jubilee from Numbers chapter 25. And in this statement, in the year of Jubilee, in Numbers chapter 25, Yahweh God decreed the law that Israel would practice a Sabbath year every 50th year in order to rest in the Lord's favor in the Lord's goodness, and in the Lord's plenty. And during this 50th year, all debts would be forgiven, all slaves would be set free and allowed to return to their homes, to other nations, and all of the land would rest from 49 years of consistent work. But did you know that of all the laws that God decreed Israel to follow, that Israel actually never never actually obeyed the year of Jubilee. Do you know that? And can you see why? Because forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard. Canceling debts. I mean, when you cancel a debt, where does it go? It comes to you, <laughs> right? If you cancel, if, if someone owes you something and you say, hey, don't worry about it, that means that you become the pair of that debt. Can you understand why Israel never obeyed this law? But even still, and this is so crucial, even still God desires for us to live jubilee lives, to live in, in that kind of freedom to live with that kind of forgiveness come true in our lives and for that freedom to come true in other people's lives. The year of Jubilee is essential to God's character, which is why God's Messiah would be the one who would eventually bring the year of Jubilee. In Christ, your Heavenly Father proclaimed the year of Jubilee on your life by forgiving your sins on the cross. Jesus canceled your debt and paid it 
as a sacrifice, as his sacrifice. That's why Paul stated, in whom our Messiah, Jesus Christ, in this Colossian passage, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Paul links these two words together, redemption and forgiveness. I want to I just stop for a moment on this. Paul links these two words together for a very specific reason. In the original Greek, the word from which we derive the English word forgiveness in Colossians chapter 1 is the very same word of the evangelist Luke used for the word freedom. Remember when I said hold on to that word? It's the very same word that the evangelist used for freedom in reference to the prisoners in Luke chapter 4. Other translations use the word deliverance. For those of you who grew up reading the King James Version of the Bible, then some of you may be more familiar with the word remission. Remission literally means the cancellation of debt. Either way, the Greek word aphasin, forgiveness and freedom, literally means a sending away, a letting go, a complete pardon, a complete forgiveness. That's what's behind this word. In the Colossians passage, Paul used those two words, redemption and forgiveness, in order to cue the first century ear to remember the Exodus narrative. Just like if I said the words now, if I said uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what would I be cueing the 21st century ear to think about? The Declaration of Independence, our nation's history, right? If I said those words, it would just automatically conjure up certain definitions for you, certain, certain thoughts, certain images for you. Paul, in using these two words, redemption and forgiveness, is cueing the first century here to remember the Exodus, to think about that Exodus narrative and what happened in their faith history. Listen, when Paul speaks of God rescuing people from one kingdom and giving them another kingdom, in the son whom he loves, and of redemption and of forgiveness as the central themes of that rescue operation, what Paul is doing here is writing with the exodus from Egypt in mind, which would have been the central heartbeat and the central hope of every Jewish person of God in the first century. All of God's people during the first century longed for the day when there would be a new Moses of sorts that would lead them out of, out of captivity under Roman rule and into the fullness of the life that God promised Israel all the way back with Abraham. Israel longed for that day. They longed for the day when they would live in total freedom. And when I think about that, I can't help but to think about us. I can't help but to think about our own culture our, our great city, Miami, and so many people who long for the day where their hearts would be set free, where their lives would live with, without the weight of their past weighing on them with every move they made, <laughs> without longing for some better future other than their present, some of you may be feeling the exact same way right now. In this passage, what Paul did was identify Jesus as the new Moses. <laughs> in Christ, God came all the way down to us in order to deliver all of God's people from the bonds of slavery to sin. 
which Paul identified as one kingdom, a dark kingdom, an evil kingdom, a kingdom that's oppressive, a kingdom that weighs on you into a new kingdom defined by love, into a kingdom defined by the hope of Jesus Christ and marked by the forgiveness of sins. We sang earlier that we're a child of God, that God split the seas so that we could walk right through. In our day and age today, right now in the 21st century, that splitting of seas is in the forgiveness of sins. As the Lord forgives our sins, now we're able to walk on dry ground into the promised inheritance, the promised land of eternity. What God has done in Jesus and is now doing for every person who places his or her trust in Jesus, what God is doing is the new exodus in every single one of us. Every single one of us. On the cross, Jesus set free our hearts from sin, forgave us, raised again for us, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, for us, so that we may gratefully follow him all the way into eternity. Following Jesus means leaving the Egypt of our sin in the past and instead entering into the promised land of eternal life. Forgiveness and redemption smashed into each other on the cross. It just... And Jesus paid the ransom for our our sin by dying the death that we deserved. Assumed our sin as his own. Forgave us for choosing our own way and freed us from living hopelessly chained to the bonds of our sin. Hence why Paul wrote elsewhere in his letter to the church in Rome, we know that the old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. If as you read through Paul's letters, you can see this Exodus motif appearing again and again and again. On the cross, quite simply, Jesus redeemed our lives back to God and forgave us of our eternal debt. Forgiveness results from both grace and mercy at work in our lives. Grace being that we receive something that we don't deserve and mercy being that we are not receiving what we do deserve. And both of them come to fruition on the cross. Jesus bought us back from our death. Sin once owned our lives, but God forgave and paid death's ransom on our behalf. A life for life. And Jesus gave his life for ours. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver. Forgiveness always comes with a price tag, every time. Reminds me of that old hymn I used to sing as a kid growing up. Maybe you sang this hymn too. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. When we sing that phrase, all to him I owe, that, that for some, you know, when you're, when, you're kind of, when you're thinking about that from a works righteousness angle, it's like, wow, like how do I, all of a sudden I owe Jesus everything? We owe Jesus everything in the sense that Jesus' forgiveness of our sins and redemption of our lives means that now God holds us. God, God now owns our hearts. This uh, past fall, a couple of months ago, uh, Stacy and I, my wife, we sent our oldest daughter to kindergarten for the first time. Any new kindergarten parents in here? Anyone? Yeah, well, a couple of you. I mean, if you can remember those days, those days, I don't know, I don't know what's harder, the birth of a child or sending your child to kindergarten. My goodness, both, both require about the same amount of preparation. But uh, in, uh, in, the, in the act of not 
of, of helping my daughter not lose everything that we'd send to school with her, <laughs> which, is a, which is a challenge. My wife has literally labeled everything, which is a true testament to her attention to detail and is the greatest compliment to my absent-mindedness. It's, it's a wonderful, we make a wonderful pair when we're working well together. And uh, she, she literally labeled every crayon, every glue stick, every marker. It's remarkable. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, in, in the same way, on the cross, God did the very same thing with you and with me. On the cross, what God did in his redemption and forgiveness of sins, essentially God says, that heart, that heart of yours, that belongs to Jesus. That belongs to Jesus Christ. That mind of yours, it's like that underline. You know, in, uh, in kindergarten, you know, you receive everything, and it's like this belongs to underline, and then in parentheses says first and last name. It's like God says that mind of yours, that belongs to underline Jesus Christ. That, those hands, that belongs to Jesus Christ. Those feet, those belong to Jesus Christ. I bought you back. You belong to me now. That situation that you may be going through, those issues that they just constantly nag you in the back of your mind, the future that, you, that you're dreading, the consequences that you may be facing, the relationships that are causing you tension. Oh yeah, all of that, that belongs to Jesus Christ. All of that belongs to Jesus Christ. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote, who lives in you and is given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And when we think about our bodies, I think Paul intended for the whole body, not just the substance of our bodies, but the thoughts, our soul, our mind, every part of what makes you, you. God now holds on to the whole thing. And as a result of Jesus buying us back for himself, our lives no longer belong to us. In fact, they never did. God redeemed us, paid our ransom in full, and once again, God now holds us in the same way that God did in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in the same way that God did when he walked with us in the coolness of the night, in the same way that God desires to do as God intends to bring all of this into redemption. Forgiveness is love's power to break nature's rule, and though nature's rule ensures a sense of fairness, what nature's rule does not do is satisfy. Fairness appeases, but it doesn't satisfy, <laughs> right? I mean, all of those who understand fairness, you know that it doesn't appease. Our society needs fairness and balance. We need that in our world. As a people, we need the rule of law to govern us and to sustain us, but our hearts and our relationships, we need fulfillment. We need satisfaction. Are you satisfied with appeasement when someone appeases you? Are you satisfied by merely living by the fairness principle? I certainly hope not, for if all of us live by the fairness principle, then none of us really deserve anything. Because all of us are both offender and the offended. We live on, the, on, on both sides of the forgiveness equation every single day. Freedom comes as we follow Jesus through the split sea of forgiveness into the newness of life. 
as we receive Christ's forgiveness wholly and completely upon us. Forgive our, as Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us of our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. That's true freedom. To say those words, we receive your forgiveness, Jesus, and as we do so, we seek to forgive others. That's true freedom, to forgive those who have sinned against you. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to remember every time we share in the Lord's Supper together. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from this cup, all of you. We say this every time that we share communion together. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for what? For the forgiveness of sins. In his death, Jesus made a new covenant with us, which means a new promise and that promise being to forgive us of our sins all the way, all the way to completion. Every sin ever committed, every sin that we will ever commit. In Christ, God sees you entirely righteous because in Christ, there is no fault. There is no sin. God sees you. God, your heavenly Father, sees you as God originally intended to see you from the very beginning, as solely his son, his daughter, holy and blameless and without fault in his eyes. If we confess our sins, the apostle John wrote, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, I, I want to speak for a moment just on this word confession. This, this word might make you cringe. <laughs> it made me cringe growing up. But I want to acknowledge for just a moment what confession isn't. Confession isn't speaking with a darkened shadow in a closed booth every couple of years hoping that something happens. Confession isn't speaking words blindly into the air hoping that magically the situation just disappears, right? Rather, confession literally means, homo legeo, literally means same word. That's literally what this word means. Same word. To speak the same language. To agree. Jesus said the thief, your sin will still kill and destroy. And confession says, you know what? I agree with that. <laughs> I, you know, Jesus, I agree that my sin is killing me. I agree that my sin is hurting me, is hurting others. I agree that my sin is harming my witness to you. And confession says, Jesus, I can't, I can't deal with all of this. And I can't make all of my wrongs right again. And confession says, help me trust you for the complete forgiveness of my sins. And Lord, help me reconcile the relationships that I've harmed. Help me forgive myself. Because, Jesus, I agree. I agree with what you did on the cross, and it's truth for me in my life. That's what confession does. And sometimes the hardest person to forgive is yourself. Is forgiving the person on the other side of the mirror, staring back at you and wondering, could God ever really... Okay, God's forgiveness might be true of you, but could... God's forgiveness ever really be true of that person staring right back at me. And what Jesus' forgiveness on the cross says to you is 
this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of all of your sins. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ means for you. No matter how unforgivable your wrong may feel, no matter how much time has gone by, no matter how difficult it might be to speak with the person whom you hurt. When Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, that promise is true for you. Likewise, Jesus also died for the person that you want to see burn. On the cross, when Jesus was agonizing, Jesus had that person in mind too. And Jesus said, I forgive that person fully of their sins. And so to agree with God means that when we confess that we're acknowledging not only whatever hurts we may have caused, but we're also acknowledging that Jesus' forgiveness of sins is true of the offender. Now here I just want to note, this is an appropriate place for me to say that in this message, I'm not addressing the consequences of people's actions. That's for a different time. That's an important message, but that's not this message. This message is about what Jesus' forgiveness means for you and the call to extend that forgiveness to others. Jesus' calling isn't easy, friends. Vengeance is easy. Karma is easy. Forgiveness is hard. It's hard. Like you, I've done this with people in my life. And every time, no matter what the offense was, every time, even the smallest offense, forgiveness always felt unnatural to me. Always. Of course, I want to see my offender receive the fullest maximum penalty allowed, right? I mean, all of us, we, we want to see that. That's that moral superiority rising up within all of us. We want to see justice come upon the person who offended us. Until at some point we come to realize that in wanting vengeance, in wanting to see karma come back around, we inadvertently place ourselves in a prison of our own making for ultimately vengeance and moral superiority never satisfies. It never, ever satisfies. And we know this. We know this, but yet we long for it because something about feeling angry, there's something about just wanting that other person to pay. We just, it just cathartically feels good until we realize that over months and years that it's just worn us down and it's broken our hearts and we realize that we have not experienced at all what Jesus promised to give us on the cross, that that true taste of satisfaction for which all of us long. Forgiveness slowly dissipates the pain and sets our heart free to live in an imperfect world that anticipates a new kingdom to come. Now, I also need to say that confession isn't about shame or feeling bad. Our emotions are complex, and sometimes we don't always feel what we think we ought to feel or we should be feeling. So take caution about waiting to feel the right thing before you forgive. Remember, confession means agreement. Can we all agree that sin is killing? Yeah, well, you know, I can agree with that before my heart feels it. Mentally, I can get around the fact that, yeah, you know, what I'm doing is it's hurting myself, it's harming someone else before I feel that. 
Transformation often happens by the renewing of the mind first before the emotions become renewed. And so as we go about our week this week, as we confront all of those things that might happen to us, whether they be the slightest indiscretions, the social indiscretions, the rude things that happen to us, sometimes by total strangers for which we will never have the opportunity to reconcile, or whether they be the massive things that happen or the things that we've been carrying this week. May we come to experience and view each one of those difficult situations as an opportunity to experience the, full, the fullness of forgiveness come alive on the cross as it comes alive in our hearts. For as Jesus said, those who have been forgiven forgive much. Jesus doesn't give us the option not to do this, <laughs> even though I so wish he did. Jesus doesn't give us the option. And elsewhere in Paul's letters, he says, forgive, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. You know, we can be known as a lot of things in our community as a church. We can be known for a lot of things, for our generosity, for our mission, for all the ways in which we serve our community, through Feed Miami, through these great initiatives. But the earliest disciples didn't see those as the greatest things that ought to be considered in this creed. Instead, what they wrote was the forgiveness of sins. What marks the church as unique as separate from the rest of the world and what allows the fullness of Christ's body to come alive in our world is in the forgiveness of sins. As we receive that, as we receive Christ's cleansing and his wholeness come true in our lives, then we may extend that forgiveness to others. In fact, we can only forgive because right now as we speak, as we talked about a few weeks ago, our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father and all power and glory and honor are now funneled through you by the power of the Holy Spirit come alive in you. This week, may we lean on that as a church. May we embrace this, this scandalous gospel because it's actually there that we'll be able to demonstrate our greatest witness to the city as we share this forgiveness with others. Father, we thank you for going all the way to the cross for us and giving us your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for setting into motion a new promise for us to forgive our sins and to set us free from all unrighteousness. And in doing so, reconciling our relationship back to God. Father, our lives belong to you now. And so we ask for the strength and the courage to take each day, one day at a time. To take each moment and face whatever may come to us with your grace and your mercy come alive in forgiveness. God, thank you for setting our hearts free and for leading us into a new promised land. <laughs> the promised land of eternal life marked by the path of forgiveness. God, we thank you 
and we make this prayer in your name. And for those of you today who want to start your lives afresh and want to experience this forgiveness, perhaps for the first time, then I want to invite you to say this prayer with me. Father, I, I, I realize now that I've been living my own way for far too long. I've been living in a prison of my own making, living in unforgiveness, and wanting to see those who've offended me, wanting to see them pay. But God, in fact, that's not what you've, that's not what you've invited me into. That's not the kind of life that you desire for me. So Father, I receive your full forgiveness. Every part of me, I receive it today for the first time. And now in doing so, by your spirit come alive in me. I can forgive others and let a new story be written marked by your grace. Father, I thank you. Thank you for receiving me. Thank you for leading me. I invite your Holy Spirit to come upon me and for your forgiveness to come alive in me. If you prayed this prayer with me today and would like today to be a new day, then would you just simply raise your hand so I can see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you in the front. Thank you to my side, my left. Thank you. Lord, for every hand raised, I pray your blessing upon each and every single person. I pray that your spirit would come alive in a fresh and new way for not only those who raise their hands, but for all of us, Father. May we be a church marked by forgiveness. Father, give us the courage to live fully into this way, as hard as it is, as scandalous as it is. Father, this is, this is what you've called us to do. And so lead us forth in the name of your resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Amen.